We are continuing our series in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And if you're using one of the uh, Bibles in the back, you'll find Ephesians chapter 2 on page 976. Specifically today, we're reading verses 11 through 13. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, we're back in Ephesians chapter 2 again. Good morning, church. I'm glad to be with you and glad to be able to dive into these three verses together, verses 11 through 13 in Hebrews. Sorry, Hebrews. That's a different book. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, Paul is beginning to describe a deep rivalry. It's complex, it's hostile, but it was a rivalry that existed between two cultures, Gentiles, who were non-Jewish people, and the Jews themselves. And this rivalry dates back, if you read the Old Testament and you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you see this rivalry take place throughout. In fact, God's will was for the Jewish people not to behave in this way. In fact, he desired that the Gentiles would know about the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, and that they would be welcomed in to the covenant community. But over time, as a result of sin and the effects of sin on human relationships and human hearts, ethnic pride rose in the people of Israel, and they began to despise non-Jewish people. And we see that carried over into the church at Ephesus. When Paul is writing, we have to remember that when Paul's writing these letters, he's writing to a, in a specific historical context, a specific historical situation. But those principles and the things we learn apply just as much today, because last time I checked, racial, racial prejudice is alive and well. And so this kind of stuff applies very much today and the things we're going to learn over the next three weeks in this section, Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, is going to provide us a basis for not only understanding but um, applying the gospel to our relationships, especially with those Christians that are the most different from us. A little background on this Jew-Gentile relationship this rivalry was deeply religious. The, G the Gentiles did not know the God of Israel, and the Jews did. It was a cultural rivalry. Jews had certain rituals and feasts and ceremonies that distinguished them from other nations, and they often became a source of pride and exclusion. It was racial as well. The Jews could boast about having the blood of Abraham running through their veins while the Gentiles were foreigners and strangers to such things. One commentator sums up the rivalry well with these words. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles said the Jews 
were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. See, they took God's love too far. They thought that just because God loved Israel that he didn't love the nations as well. When in fact, God told Israel that he loved the nations as well and that they were to be a means of making that known to the nations. Continuing with the quote, it was not even lawful for Jews to render help, listen to this, to a Gentile mother during her delivery, her hour of sorest need, for that would be simply to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt for the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or vice versa, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentiles was equivalent to death. Well, that gives you some of the background of just what level of hostility existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here's the thing. Jews and Gentiles make up the church at Ephesus. Both Jews and Gentiles who have been reconciled to God through Christ now comprise this church. So Paul's not ignorant of the history, the background, the struggle that would have been expected in this new context. How are these two groups, which once had, and still to that day, had such an intense, contemptuous rivalry to relate to each other now that they are both in Christ? They are both believers in Jesus, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. Does the gospel have anything to say about the way we relate to each other? Does the gospel have anything to say about the way we love, respect, value, and cherish those who are most different from us? It most certainly does. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, sheds light on the meaning of God's eternal purpose to sum up all things in Christ, as stated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, which we were in a, several weeks ago. Remember that purpose of God, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10? As a plan for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1, 10, to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, two obstacles have to be overcome before the divine purpose to unite all things in Christ would reach the fulfillment. What are those two things? First, the subjugation of the powers and the defeat of sin. That's things in heaven relating to our relationship with God and the church particularly the relationship of Jews and Gentiles, representing the things on earth. So the gospel of Jesus Christ has as much to do with reconciling us to God as it does reconciling people to people. In Paul's mind, that is the whole purpose of the gospel, to reconcile things in heaven and things on earth. Therefore, the church is to be a display of, of what it looks like for man to be reconciled to God and man to be reconciled to man. And to the degree that the church does not display that, it's to the degree it's unfaithful and a bad representation of God. Now, Jonathan reminded us last the last two weeks as he preached through Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 10, the individual implications of Christ's work for us. That is, Christ's death on the cross was for individuals. It was we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we who followed the prince of the power of the air, we who were enslaved to sin, we who once followed the passions of our flesh, but it was God who came in the person of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us alive, to regenerate us, to bring us into his kingdom and save us by grace. And that was Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. He talked to us about our condition before conversion and our condition after conversion. That we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you know what one of those main good works is? Learning how to love people who are different from you. That's why he picks up in verse 11. He says, well, so let's talk about some good works. All right, we're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's talk about Jew-Gentile relationship. Yeah, I'm going to bring that up, Paul says. I'm going to go ahead and bring it up. Lift the elephant right out of the, in the middle of the room and call it out. And, and no doubt, there would have been some tense stuff when Paul was addressing this in this letter. Is this letter's being read publicly to the church at Ephesus. I mean, people are going to be thinking... Ooh, yeah, he's talking to me about that person over there. I mean, you could imagine Gentiles on one side, Jews on another, right, in the church. Could you imagine that? You could imagine them sitting separately and and then whoever's the pastor of the church or one of the elders or perhaps a deacon standing up and reading and saying, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. I mean, imagine sitting there and hearing that for the first time. And so Paul moves from the individual implications of Christ's work in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, namely how he defeated our sin, provided us a righteousness, raised us from spiritual death, saved us by grace. And now he moves just as quickly to the corporate or personal implications of that. The relational ones, sorry. So you have personal in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, and you have relational in verses 11 through 22. And this week we're just going to talk about the first three verses of the section verses 11 through 13, which is really a parallel with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. He's following the same sort of pattern here. What he does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is this, right? He describes our condition before Christ. He describes how God makes us alive. And then he he describes in verses 8 through 10 what difference that makes, right? Then in this section, verses 11 through 22, in verses 11 through 13, he describes our corporate condition before Christ, our relational condition before Christ. In verses 14 to 18, what God has done to reconcile that. And then verses 19 through 22, what we should, we do, we should do as a result. So in Paul's mind, when he thinks, what difference does the gospel make in people's lives? He thinks vertical and horizontal. Because he knows the greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor. Right? So he knows the gospel in and of itself has a purpose for for vertical reconciliation with God and horizontal relationship with man. Through the cross, we are not only reconciled to God, we're reconciled to each other. That's his big point in verses 11 through 22. So, here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to see three things from verses 11 through 13. 
Paul wants them to change their mind about the way they're thinking about their relationships, especially across cultures and across ethnicities. And he wants them to, he uses his word remember twice. You see it in verse 11, therefore remember. And then in verse 12, remember. He's calling them to recall who they were, specifically Gentiles, non-Jews, who they were before Christ to give them an appropriate humility and disposition of love toward Jews and reminding Jews that Gentiles are included to give them appropriate humility and disposition of love so that the whole church can be reconciled to each other and move forward in mission together. That's his purpose for writing this. So here's the first of those three things we want to see. We're going to see one thing in verse 11, one thing in verse 12, and one thing in verse 13. Let's start with verse 11. And here's the point. Paul wants us to think appropriately about our culture. Think appropriately about our culture. Notice what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Pause. Now, this is, I know this is some strange language going on here, especially for those of you who may be new to Scripture, not familiar with the storyline of the Bible. You know, what's all this talk about circumcision, uncircumcision? I mean, this is weird. But what we have to understand, first of all, is that circumcision was the chief identity marker of being a Jew. It was tied into the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. Abraham was circumcised, and it was taken as a pattern for all Jewish people. The the children of Abraham, those who followed from Abraham, would be circumcised as well. I mean, that was the identity marker of Jewishness. And notice what he says here. He says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, because they were non-Jews, they didn't have the covenant sign, they were not part of the people of Israel, by what is called the circumcision, that is, Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. What's going on here? Why is Paul writing this way? Why is he talking like this? Well, I think, it's, I think it's fairly easy to understand. Why he's talking like this is because he wants them to quit thinking culturally for a minute. He wants them to think appropriately about their culture. See, they're not thinking appropriately about their culture. What they're thinking is what matters most to the way I relate to people is whether or not they have a certain physical mark on them, right, to avoid being crass in mixed company. But they have a certain physical mark, say, on a certain male part that would distinguish them as a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. And Paul says, look, you're thinking totally wrong about this. You're thinking fleshly about this. And you're thinking in terms of what man does. Man-made ideas. That's why he uses this language of, notice how he says this. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the only thing that makes you a Gentile is what's not on your flesh. Circumcision. All right? That's fleshly. That's worldly by what is called the circumcision or the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. By the way, that circumcision, Paul says, was made in the flesh by hands. He's contrasting the work of God with the work of man. Now, how do I know that? Well, think with me for a second. The way this phrase human hands is used specifically in the New Testament But it almost always points to the contrast between the external aspects of old Judaism 
under the Mosaic Covenant and the internal spiritual superiority of the New Covenant. Just think about this. Mark 14, verse 58. We heard him say, this is referring to Jesus, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. See the difference? I mean, Jesus in that context is talking about his resurrection from the dead, his body. And they're saying there's a physical temple which is made with hands, and there's a spiritual temple, namely the, Christ, the body of Christ, which is not made with hands. So it's contrasting work of man, work of God. Another verse, Acts seven forty eight. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. See, that's a work of man, right? Acts seventeen twenty four. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. See that phrase again? Contrasting the work of God with the work of men. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So all this language of not being made with hands, not, not being made with hands. The idea is to assert that God, what, to, to, to assert the difference between what God himself has done and what man has done. Paul's point is that circumcision that's performed in the flesh with human hands is no longer real or spiritually meaningful. It does nothing to advantage you toward the presence of God. Nothing. Nothing. But what's really important is not the work that's done on the skin, but the work that's done by Christ in the heart. That's his point. So he's contrasting this hands idea of made by human hands with God and what God has done. And he's calling them to think appropriately about their culture. Think spiritually about your culture. Stop thinking that what really makes you, you, is Gentileness or Jewishness. Uncircumcision or circumcision. All that's in the flesh. All that's made by hands. Stop thinking it's such a big deal. And this this runs right through the New Testament. Let me just give you a few verses about the idea that circumcision, as it was done in the Old Testament is not giving you advantage in terms of uh, your relationship with God. Think of Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I mean, it can't be clearer in the New Testament. Who are the true Jews? The church of Jesus Christ. Those who are circumcised in their hearts, not in their flesh. 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You want to know who the real circumcision is? People who worship Christ and hope in him alone. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I mean, it's right throughout the New Testament, isn't it? It's over and over and over again in the letters of Paul. Because as he writes these letters to new Christians in new churches, this is one of the big issues for them. How do we then, now that this new covenant has come and the gospel is told by Jesus is to be taken to the nations. So he said, go and you preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit, teach them to obey all I've commanded you. So now that Christ has commissioned us, that goes across cultural. How are we supposed to think about it? How are we supposed to apply it? And I just want to say a word before we get to the second point here about how this might apply to some of us in the room this morning. I think it applies to people who grew up in Owensboro and maybe attended a church here and there and they're not a professed Muslim or Buddhist or atheist, but just because they walked through a door or are a part of a Christian culture that they think they're in relationship with God. Let me just say that's, that's not true. You can grow up in a Christian culture. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can attend a Christian church but that doesn't mean you're in relationship with God because all that's man-made all that stuff you're doing. Okay. What really matters is have you been changed by the power of the gospel? Has the Holy spirit taken up residence in your life and put to death the tyranny of sin, not perfection, not that you're not struggling, but that a decisive death blow has happened to you. Have you felt like, as you have interacted with God, that God has killed you? Because that's what Jesus calls you to do. Take up your cross. Follow me. Right? Die to yourself. Have you, have you encountered the holiness of God in such a way that it has made your sin appear like the grossest and gravest in the world? That there is no sinner greater than you. Because you know yourself and you know God. And as a result of that, you have turned from that sin and pled to God for mercy. You've said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust the Savior that you have provided. I forsake all of my works, both my good works and my bad works, my sin and my righteousness, and I lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. And I claim him and him alone as the only Savior that you have provided. And I trust him completely for my salvation. I boast not in myself, not in others, in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. All right? Not a ethnic or cultural thing. It's a work of God in the heart. Point number two. And by the way, before I get to point number two, I would just encourage you. That can all change for you this morning. If you're sitting here this morning... And you're like, yeah, I'm a cultural Christian. I'm just a cultural Christian. I haven't, I haven't ever taken my sin to Jesus personally. I haven't ever asked the blood of Christ to cover my sin. I've never turned from that sin. I might have prayed for forgiveness a million times, but I'm not willing to repent. I'm not willing to let it go. I'm not willing to agree with God that what he says about my sin is right. I'm not willing to confess it. I'm not willing to be baptized and publicly declare my faith in Christ. Well, you can change all that this morning. You can, in your seat right there, pray 
Surrender yourself to Jesus. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that he and he alone has provided the Savior that you need. And you can leave this place a believer in Jesus and a Christian for the first time. And I would encourage you to do that. I would plead with you to do that. Point number two. Not only does Paul want us to think appropriately about our culture, but he wants us to think seriously about our condition. Think seriously about our condition. Now, he's specifically to speaking to Gentiles here, those of us who are non-Jews, which is, as far as I know, almost 100% of this room, if not 100%. Notice what he says in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, that is before you came to Christ, before Christ came, preached the gospel, and before you heard it. Remember that at that time, you were separated. He lists five things here. Separated from Christ, first one. Second, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Four, having no hope. And five, without God in the world. So he gives us five aspects of our serious condition before Christ. And he's writing this and reminding of this, reminding us of this to appropriately humble us and to remind us just how great the mercy that we have received is. Okay? So let's take these one at a time. We'll just take them briefly. He says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were Christless. The question here is, how can they be Christless? Why were they Christless before? Because they hadn't hoped in the Messiah. They hadn't transferred their trust to Jesus, the one who was promised to come as the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the true Jew. They hadn't received him. They hadn't heard about him. And so he conceives of Christ as a Messiah, and this is true, that belongs to the people of Israel. Of course, is one to remain in the people of Israel. The people of Israel were to take the Messiah and the hope of the Messiah and his kingship to the nations. But what he reminds us here is that God dealt with a unique way and an almost an exclusive way in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. The Gentiles were largely left ignored. And he says, I want you to think about that condition. When we read our Old Testaments, we should read as like, this isn't, I mean, in Christ, that's our book, right? But before Christ, that's not our story. That's the story of Israel, right? And what God's doing in the people of Israel to prepare a way for the Messiah that would be for all nations. But here he reminds us that before you came to Christ and before you heard the gospel and before God fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament concerning Christ, you were without Christ. Second, he says you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The idea is you, did, you were not belonging to the people of God. God's particular chosen people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, were the commonwealth of Israel, the people of Israel, the state of Israel. And he says you were a foreigner. You were stateless. You were not only Christless, you were stateless. You didn't have access to the blessings, privileges, resources, duties of being a citizen of Israel. During that old covenant age in the Old Testament, God restricted largely his elective purposes to Israel. And now he, Paul reminds them that, listen, 
You were alienated from all of that. Also, he says that we were friendless, not only Christless and stateless, but friendless, strangers, he says, to the covenants of promise. All those covenants that God was making in the Old Testament with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, with Isaac and Jacob and David, and all these covenants that he was covenanting initially with Adam and then initially with, with, with uh, Abraham and Moses and all those, and David, all these covenants did not immediately or initially apply to them. They were not fulfilled yet in a, in the, in a complete sense. These covenants were all characterized and based on a promise, God's pledge to be faithful to his people and fulfill his word to them. And he says that you were outside of those covenants of promise. And then he says, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. To summarize, we were without, we were without access to salvation and we, were, we had no relationship with God. So he says, you were Christless, you were stateless, you were friendless, you were hopeless, and you were godless. You didn't belong to the people of God. You had no hope of salvation and access through the covenant of God. You had no relationship with God. It's a sad, I mean, he's vividly picturing how dark our condition was. Because we have to remember something, brothers and sisters, like, like Jesus reminded the woman at the, or the woman at the well in that whole discourse Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. John 4.22. Remember that it was to the Jews God gave covenants and promises and an inheritance and hope and commitment and all of that. And what happens when we come to Christ is we get in on that. We get in on that. For a non-Jew, a Gentile like me, to have any hope at all, I have to be included in the commonwealth of Israel. I have to be given access to those promises and to that covenant. I have to have access to the hope of salvation and the relationship with God that God had promised to his people. I must become in the language of Ephesians two nineteen, which we'll get to in a few weeks, a fellow citizen with the saints and a member of the household of God. That is, I must be a part of true Israel. I must be a true Jew. See, when redemptive history arrived in the coming of Jesus Christ, it didn't split into two histories. One for the redemption of Israel and one for the redemption of the Gentiles. Instead, it opened up and expanded so as to embrace all believing Gentiles into the people of God, the true Israel. That's what happened when the Christ came. He came to expand God's promises, expand God's grace, expand the covenant to include all believing Gentiles into the true Israel, the people of God. And we just have to remember this. Right, And Paul spends time in the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9, explaining to the Jews their privileged status and how great the access they had to God was. They had so much light. I mean, prophets and 
vivid demonstrations of God, miraculous, saving, delivering power. We had none of that. Gentiles had none of that. Paul reminds them in Romans 9, 4, and 5, they are Israelites to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh. And and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. Jesus was a Jewish man. And so he comes as a fulfillment of all of God's promises to the Jews, their Messiah, their hope comes and he arrives on the scene and reminds them, reminds Jews of what they should have known all along, which is I'm not a Messiah for you alone. I'm a Messiah for the nations. I have come because God's heart from the very beginning was to choose you, Israel, not so that you would be my little covenant people, but that through you, I would bless the nations of the earth. That was God's goal in the beginning. And so, for us to get in on that is salvation and hope for us. So that is the second point. He wants us to think seriously about our condition. I mean, we have to remember that by grace and by grace alone do we benefit from God's saving plan and God's saving purposes. And we're going to get into that now as we turn to point three. So we've seen, think appropriately about your culture. Don't exalt it to make it mean more than what Christ has, has done for you and in you. Secondly, think seriously about your condition. And then thirdly, think gratefully. Think gratefully about your Christ. That's verse 13. Let's read that one together. Here's how it's all changed for us, brothers and sisters. But now, this is the rest of our biography. But now, right now, in Christ Jesus, by faith in him, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There it is. There it is. That's our condition now. That's our biography now. None of that separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope, without God, no, in Christ, we who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Notice how he contrasts the now of verse 12 with the at that times of verses 11 and 12. Sorry, the now of verse 13 with the at that times of verses 11 and 12. And he emphasizes the stark contrast that exists now. This whole idea of being brought near. We were far off, but now we've been brought near. And this whole language, and I don't have time to turn us there, but this whole language of near and far can have both a geographical idea, that is, this podium or pulpit is near, that door is far. It can have a geographical idea of a a physical distance, but it can also have a spiritual idea of a spiritual distance. And just some texts along those lines, Deuteronomy 4, 7, Psalm 148, verse 14, Acts 2, 39, and others talk about this near and far idea as being a spiritual idea that we, and, and Paul makes it clear in the context that his main reference is spiritual and not geographical. He's talking about we're without hope, we're without God in the world, and now we have hope, we have God. Notice his language here. This is the but God of this section, Okay. 
You remember how Jonathan preached for us two weeks ago and talked about, you know, he got that, that great but God in the middle of verse four or at the beginning of verse four. When Paul lays out all this deadness and sin in which we once walked and being enslaved to the devil. And then verse four, but God, well, here we have a but now. All right. Paul loves to do stuff like this. He loves to, he loves to take us low and raise us high. He does that all the time in his writings. He gets the gospel, doesn't he? That's, that's what the gospel's supposed to do. We got to go real low first so we can go real high. Shallow gospel, shallow life. If you really know yourself, you really know the deadness of your spiritual condition, you're really willing to stare your sin in the face and see how black and ugly it is, get ready to be happy. Get ready to be happy. Because what Paul will do then is take you out of that and shift and say, listen, but now, but now you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. How have we been brought near? Well, we're no longer Christless. Jesus is our savior. We're no longer separated from Christ. We belong to Christ. We're no longer stateless. We're not alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We are Israel. We're no longer friendless. We're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. We're partakers of the covenants of promise. We are the true sons of Abraham. Our true Davidic king has come. We, we follow him. And we are partakers of the new covenant. We do know God. God has washed all of our sins away in the blood of Christ. And written his law on our hearts. And given us a knowledge of himself. We're no longer hopeless. We have access to the hope of salvation in Christ. We're no longer godless. We are in relationship with God through Christ. That's what it means to be brought near. That all these descriptions that are given to us in verse 12 are no longer true of us in verse 13. Because what we once were is true no longer because of one reason. The blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only difference that that made. His blood shed for our sins changed Jew-Gentile exclusion. It changed it because, well, how did it change us? Because as we'll see next week, it removed the dividing wall of hostility between them. And I'm not going to preach any more about that lest I slip into that sermon next week. So we'll be back next week, Lord willing, and get into those verses together. So, but, but I am going to skip ahead just a little bit to Ephesians three. I want you to look at verse four through six, because this is where Paul kind of reaches a climax with this whole idea. And just notice, just get a little sneak peek. Sneak preview of coming attractions here. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse chapter three, verse four, verse five, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Verse six, this mystery, and this is the summary statement here. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel cards on the table. End of story. There's the cards on the table. Gentiles are fellow citizens with the people of Israel, which means that Gentiles are part of Israel. They are partakers of the same body, not two different bodies, not two different purposes of God, the same body. One body, one church, one purpose. I just want to read some of the good news verses about this from the New Testament. As Paul says elsewhere, Galatians 3.29, remember this? 
if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Philippians 3.3, 3, by faith, you are the true circumcision. Galatians 3.9, you are sons of Abraham. Romans 2.29, you're real Jews. Romans 11 paints this as a beautiful picture. If, you've, if you get a chance, read through that this afternoon where it pictures this olive branch representing the people of Israel and this idea that natural branches, which were Jews, were broken off so that foreign branches, Gentiles, could be grafted in. And that's what we are. We are grafted in. That's mercy. That's mercy that we... It pictures Israel as this cultivated olive tree, and now we have been grafted into this rich root of redemptive history and salvation. Therefore, this whole book is our story. The Old Testament's our story. It's not just about the people of Israel. Because Christ has fulfilled his purpose to make us part of the true Israel, it's our story too. And therefore, we read the Old Testament, we see how God dealt with his people in the Old Testament with with mercy and grace and compassion in the face of their idolatry. And we rejoice that he treats us the same way. But we get an even better promise because they broke the covenant. God disowned them. But we'll never break the covenant because the new covenant is indestructible. And God's going to make sure that everyone that he saves, every Gentile, every true ethnic Jew that is also a believer in Jesus Christ and hopes in the Messiah, is going to be part of that great cultivated olive tree. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must never boast as though somehow... A Gentile program has replaced the Jewish one in God's mind. We are simply and graciously and freely granted to have part in the promise of Abraham through the work of God. There's only one people of God, the vessels of mercy, the true Israel, whom God has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Romans 9.24 and Ephesians 2.15. Let me conclude here with a few words of application for us, all right? And then we'll be finished. A few takeaways from this text. First of all, I want to say a word again to those of you who don't know where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. But I hope that if you are convinced in here that you are not a Christian, you have never trusted Christ, you have never turned from sin, you have never truly understood the gospel, then I want to say that right now, outside of Christ, your condition is verse 12. You are separated from God. You might have a lot of things that you're hoping in right now that are getting you through life just fine. There's plenty of that in America. Plenty. You'll get through life just fine without God. Probably. God might leave you to yourself, which would be the very worst thing that could ever happen to you. He just lets you be a normal American. And you have all kinds of, you have a great family, you have a great job, a great retirement plan. And a great beach home in Florida that you live in for 35 years, living to 95 years of age. Healthy all the way to the last three days when you suffer a heart attack and you don't hardly go through any struggles at all. And then you go to hell for all eternity. Because you are without hope. And you're without God in the world. Who cares if you got all the world and you don't have God? You don't want to die living the American dream, slipping into a Christless eternity. 
But here's the good news. You can be brought near this morning. All that can change because you transfer your trust to the blood of Christ that will cleanse you from all of your sin and make you a part of the people of God. And if you'd want to talk to any of us about that, talk to me about that, talk to one of our pastors, grab a friend, grab a stranger who might be your soon brother and sister and talk to us. We'd love to share with you about that and hear your story. Also, perhaps you're a uh, new Christian and uh, you're, you're brand new to the faith and you've heard a lot in our culture about, um, you know, uh, I love Jesus. I hate the church. Church is full of hypocrites. You know, um, I don't want to be a part of the church, just me and Jesus. Well, I want to push back on you a little bit this morning lovingly and say that if you've been redeemed by Christ, you have to be a part of the church. Well, you are a part of the church in the universal sense, but this letter is written to a uni- to a specific local church that Christians are members of. All right. So I would encourage you that if Christ reconciles you to God, he's also interested in reconciling you to other people, which means that attitude that might be just because you've been burned by the church in the past and the church has hurt you. We've all been hurt by the church in this room. If we're honest, we hurt each other, but we're not going to pretend and use that as an excuse not to plug in because God's interested in using your attitude of hypocrisy and another person's offense against you to bring about a glorious gospel reconciliation. It really is true. And what people do who say, I love Jesus, but hate the church. First of all, they're insulting Christ's bride. He didn't die for a pure church. He died for a messy, imperfect, sinful church. And last time I checked, every church is sinful. But we at Heritage, we want to deal honestly about that. We don't want to be knowingly and, per, and, and continually hypocritical. We don't. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what Paul's interested in, which is seeing a community of believers who are messy and sin against each other and have problems with each other and offenses against each other learn how to reconcile because the gospel's bigger. And that's what Christians don't get and they don't do well. We go back to verse 11. Ah, my culture, what I, I, this is who I am. And we don't think, no, the blood of Jesus has brought me near and has brought that person near. It should be able to bring us near. If the blood of Jesus has brought two sinners near to God, it should be able to bring two sinners near to each other. And that has application to marriage as well. Let me say a word to those of us in this room who are mature Christians, been walking with the Lord a long time. We should long for and desire and pursue a unified cultural diversity in our church. In as much as it reflects the culture of our community, we should pursue it. You know, the reality is, is that we're becoming a more diverse nation all the time, right? Let me give you some stats. Minority populations now make up roughly one-third of the U.S. population. That 30% is expected to pass to 50% by the year 2042. By 2023, minorities will comprise more than half of all children in the United States. The Hispanic population is projected to triple from 46 million to 132 million by 2050. Hispanics will probably move from 15% of the total population to around 30%. The black population is projected to increase from 41 million, 14% of the population, to 65 million, 15% by 2050. So how do you feel about all this? You know what I feel about this? I feel excited about all this. 
I really feel excited about all this. Do you feel like it's threatening or exciting? Do you feel possessive of culture and place? Or do you feel like God's at work with some amazing kingdom possibilities? I long for our church to be a people who love Christ-exalting diversity. And who love it most, not because it's the politically correct Christian virtue of our day, but because the one we love the most, Jesus Christ, shed his blood to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here's what John Piper says. He says, we love Christ-exalting diversity, not because it is cool or, or a social issue, but because it's a costly blood issue. We love Christ-exalting ethnic diversity because we love the gospel, end quote. And brothers and sisters, this is going to be manifested by our welcoming posture and by our willingness to lay down cultural preferences for the benefit of others. And this, if you just didn't, if you just stumbling onto this, this is one of the hardest things to do in a church. This is not easy to do. It is very hard to get people who are not from the same culture interacting as though they were. Because the Jesus culture in the church so, so affects the hearts of the whole people that cultural issues aren't even issues. Oh, that Christ would be more formed deeply in us as a people so that what people most, most recognize about our community is not the color of our skin, all right, but the Jesus and the Spirit of God living within us. And to get there, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ continually over cultural identity. The gospel is the only thing that can truly unite us as a church. Our oneness in Christ must be central. All equality is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does in Romans 1, right? He, in Romans 1 through 3, he does this. Romans 1, he says, Gentiles, you're all lost. Jews, you're all lost. Romans 3, everybody's lost. Here's Jesus. That's how he starts his letter to the Romans. And that's why he's coming to this point in the letter to the Ephesians. Because Paul can't think, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel, get individuals reconciled to God. But I'm not, I don't care about them being reconciled to each other at all. He can't even think that way. Because he knows that Christ came to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your power that has so changed our lives to make us a community of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have saved us. You have called us to yourself. You have united us to the church. And we confess, God, that in all of our hearts lays the latent sin of ethnic pride and cultural preference. And we want to lay that down more and more so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be better known, that we might be formed into his people in a more compelling, distinct, true way, that we would be a welcoming community, that we would not only welcome one another, but reach out to those who appear most different from us and with loving hands and loving arms, embrace them and welcome them into our community. God, would you move us along in this direction? Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.